0: Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from the founder of one of the world's largest home product brands on how to use purpose to design and sell great consumer products.
1: You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast. Now, onto the show.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Paul Rowan to the show. Paul is the co-founder of Umbra, a household product company that designs, manufactures, and sells hundreds of consumer products all over the world. You likely have at least one of their products in your home right now. Paul ran Umbra for 37 years, starting the entire company with just one product. Today, Paul is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can use both strategic purpose and and higher purpose to create a great first product and your first product business. From there, how do you leverage those principles to scale into a global product brand as he did with Umbra? Now, onto the episode.
2: Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. This is great
0: excited to have you on I see in your background you're in like some crazy creative art studio that's at your farm
2: (laughs) yeah well we have these outbuildings and we converted them to um studios so yeah my wife does a lot of painting in here and it's kind of like a very quiet space to do something like this recording so that's why I'm here the house is really busy with dogs and babies and all kinds of stuff so this is a nice spot that's
0: perfect sounds great it seems like very like a zen space there based on the little tour you gave me before the show I want to jump in today just into the topic of purpose. Yeah. Which is the first time we've talked about this on the show. Obviously it was a big element of success with Umbra, a massively successful uh, international product company. But uh, let's go back to the very beginning. You were at Umbra for a long time, I believe since 1980, of 37 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a run. It started with it's funny, quite a few of the executives in the team that founded the company over the first few years were musicians that we had we had bands with. So it was like uh we all knew each other from from that pursuit and we were creative we were trying to do really uh, fun things we were being social we were communicating with each other in music but that's what i really when i look back at it people always ask me oh what's you know the relationship between design and music and i said well it's about being you know for me the perfect design company or any company would be modeled on a, like an improvisational jazz band where you have like the all the different musicians like playing really unique, interesting stuff, but also having to really listen to each other to create the composition. So it's um, if you can do that in business and empower your people to be really creative and uh, contribute that way, but also be part of a like a team effort that's going to be working towards one goal, which is like the music composition, I think that's the ideal kind of form- formation for a company.
0: You know, we had quite a few episodes ago, we had a 22 year Apple executive, Michael Haglow on the show. And uh, he said, part of the Apple executive team, um, and I think he even wrote a book on it. They operated, he he coined it, very much like a band.
2: Really, I Whereas, didn't know
0: that. You should check out that episode because it wasn't all about that, but he he highlights a couple of elements about that. But when he used to work with Steve Jobs and all that stuff, he said so they used to talk about it regularly. It was like this cohesive band, and there's you know a lot of flow and interaction that happened and creativity that occurred. But he always would come back to this reference of of the band as they were going through, and I think he, it was and also from the 80s moving into the 2000s. But it's uh, very interesting to hear another successful product executive and yourself saying a very similar thing.
2: So that would be the key for people's, you know, structuring their businesses. Can you actually create something as free moving as a like improvisational jazz band? I mean, that's the challenge because you have to have, instead of people just doing your bidding, you have to be able to empower them to be individually creative and, and help drive your company forward with their contributions.
0: So I remember you mentioning that uh, one of the early days in Umbra, you 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 grew up in a hardware store.
2: Um, yeah, my dad had a hardware store in the West End of Toronto.
0: Yeah, and and you basically looked at the stuff and you said I can do a lot of these products better, and that that was really kind of the the early idea was was, was from what I heard from you fairly straightforward. I can I can do these things better, but then it evolved to something so much more. So why don't you just walk through the early days of Umbra with us?
2: Well, yeah. Um Yeah, so my dad really taught me everything about applied technology from sweeping the floor to plumbing, to electrical, to salesmanship, to, you know, dealing with customers, to inventory, you know, knowing 50,000 SKUs, you know, without, you know, thinking about it, knowing the pricing. I mean, this was like all my background for like many, many years as a kid growing up there so when it came time to sort of invent my career and do something and i was very interested in design i went to george brown for graphic design i started to uh just be thinking about i don't know just being i guess i was just a natural entrepreneur about trying to develop ideas I, i moved to ottawa to work for a company that was one a very innovative company that was doing the first uh, computerized typesetting. But as soon as I got there, we, you know, me and the guys were thinking about ideas over beers almost immediately. What were we going to do? How are we going to start a company? And I started several while I was working in that company. But then um, I moved into an apartment and the windows were bare and I just decided to do something original. So I went out and bought some kind of architectural paper that sort of resembled Japanese paper. And I mounted them on roller blinds. And then uh created prints on them and hung them in all my windows and people kept coming over saying oh where can I buy these and uh you know uh it, I took it to my business partner in um in 1979 in Toronto and um yeah he said it was Les matterpalm and he said yeah let's let's start this business out of this and it was like uh, just, um, just a big change in my life. Like, oh yeah, we're going to make one of these products. We're going to take it to market. So it was at the time we just, I just wore every hat. I was a manufacturer I was designer. I was branding. I mean, it was great to have that, that background of graphic design. I think that was, um, I really encourage people to be able to be great communicators through that kind of training. And I was able to develop the company. Like when we first took the product to the trade shows, like in Chicago, a housework show, people thought we were a lot bigger company than just two guys, you know, because we had that professionalism about, you know, branding, trade show, booth design, like all these things. I mean, um, I think that's really essential for startups to have that kind of multidisciplinary background to be able to launch these ideas. And then eventually, once we got that idea out there and actually it wasn't even the best idea it landed for, lasted for a few years uh, but it put us in in the market so they sent the message here is like whatever your ideas get embedded in the market start learning about the sales channels, start getting sales channels in place distribution relationship with cust- retail customers in our case and just start growing, and then people kept coming to us after saying, "Hey, what's your next product? We want more. We're going in. We're selling these customers. We don't just want a couple of SKUs. We want to build out the line, so it's much broader." And then that was the challenge. They just threw the gauntlet down. And they said, "Okay, yeah, here's our next product. Uh, we use offcuts from the blinds to create placemats," and then we started getting into more houseware items, uh, injection molding, and just expanding the line, like so that and we realized too that you know we didn't know what nobody you don't know what you don't know these products could you know you could work on them for a year and then the instant you put it in the market it could fail it could be because it's not competitive it could be because of competitors it could be it didn't meet the you know users needs and so we just kept doing more and more product and just flooding the market with really interesting designs what we did find though there was a big void in the market for this kind of casualization of products to suit that kind of lifestyle, like simple, mo- modern, <clears throat> affordable. Those are the kind of um, ideas we had. And, um, you know, that's when we started looking back and say, OK, what is the purpose? We did, and The purpose was for us to launch our careers, to have something to do. Entrepreneurs want to get things out there done. They want to be successful. They want to get recognized for it. But then we started in retrospect saying, hey, what is our purpose? And we started seeing this kind of democratization of design as the essential purpose of the company. So when we created this kind of purpose and statement, we started to write down keywords associated with the brand. And then we could talk to all our vendors, our recruits, our our employees about what the the purpose of the company was. And then that started to attract uh, young designers, better vendors, um, you know, global uh, uh, vendors and customers. So I think this was really essential for our growth.
0: That's amazing. A couple of things I want to unpack there, especially from <laughs> the beginning. It's like, first and foremost, uh, you just started out with one product. But something yeah. else you mentioned is you you worked really hard to make that a very a quality version, or at least a very professionally presented, professionally built product, which you said was very important for the first. I think the really interesting thing here is the fact that you started with one, you did a really good job at it. And what that allowed you to do is build the market. And then that market, the customers in particular, which would be, I guess, your retailer or wholesale buyers, those folks are the ones who started driving you to start expanding the product line from really what started as just one thing.
2: It's really true. And then that's just leads me to the discussion about, you know, who your stakeholders are and who you're who you're partnering with, with like everyone along the line. If you can bring them in as partners, as you know, the virtual partners, they may not be financial, but they're all stakeholders. Like they're they're involved in what you're doing. The retailers want new, innovative products. Um, they're gonna tell you the situation in the market. They're in touch with their customers, right? We're not, we're just like sitting there as designers, manufacturers, the retailers are face to face with the customers. This is in the 80s, by the way. So now we have the opportunity of actually being face to face with our consumers, which changes everything. But yeah, we always had great partners that were informing us about the business, about technology. I mean, sometimes technology was the biggest driver. Uh, of, of new product for us. Like when we saw a new plastic material or an additive or effect, uh, we, we started to incorporate it in the product and really made us an innovative and stand out. It's true what you said that the first product is really the most important because you've got to get it in the market. you got to have some measure of success. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, some, some, some entrepreneurs will just wait, wait, and wait to get the thing perfect. And like in the market can really pass them by. It's really important to get something out there that's going to be good and decent enough that you can support and um, and get it out there. Now, today, of course, with the consumer as advocate and, you know, liking or not liking you, you can pretty instantly, you know, fail uh, by a lot of bad reviews. So you have to be a lot more careful these days about the kind of quality of the product that you put out, that's certainly something that people are really, um, you know, judging you for. And cool. service.
0: We're a big advocate of less features, but higher quality on the features that you're doing, right? Keep it to, uh, a, a, we call it smart MVP uh, and, and our, our design language that we use as the design firm is brilliantly simple design. And it's something that we, especially with our startup customers, something that's really important to say, look, you don't need every bell and whistle on here. But the couple of bells and whistles are that your main value add, make sure that you do those and you do those well, because yes, those reviews and everything like that, it is much more of a dynamic real-time environment. But I like what you say. It doesn't have to be perfect. And that I think is the, the real key here is for the listeners to understand here that what Paul is not saying is just to release whatever you can to the market, saying release something that's of, of, a, of a good, a, a reasonable baseline quality and done in a professional format, Everything from the way that you're pitching it to the actual product itself to the quality of your manufacturing, your customer relations, all your stakeholder relations along the way. That has to be done well because that's going to be your initial flag in the market. And that is, you know, and Paul is a great example of where he took this from being that first product and then leveraged, make, ensuring that it was quality so that it built from there. And then of course now that brings us into the next portion of the topic which I'm really excited to talk about. The meat today is pa- passion and role really revolving around purpose, right? And the purpose of the company. And one of the things that you mentioned as you were kind of getting into the purpose that I think is very interesting especially for hardware startups is that it didn't it, it wasn't a purpose that was necessarily baked in or a corporate vision that was baked in from day 1. It evolved over time and it utilized something you also mentioned number of the stakeholders throughout that process. So can you kind of go back to that time where you were forming that um that vision? First of all, how did you do it? Was it something that you that you wrote down? And it and and then how did you actually involve those stakeholders to come up with that that kind of um corporate purpose, personal purpose, corporate vision and all of that that kind of went into growing an international huge success brand of Umbra?
2: Well, um, you know, I think. As you, you know, as we said earlier, like when you first start off, I think it's really difficult to define your purpose because you don't really know what you don't know. I mean, um, but, you know, as you see some successes um, from the kind of product offerings that you do just through pure creativity, I mean, it's an intuitive process at first for designers. Like, you know, usually the stuff that I see that's really good from designers is something born out of necessity. So in my case, it was those window shades, right? But a lot of other designers might have some, you know, obstacle to, to living well in their homes, how they want to improve things and so forth and invent things to, you know, solve that problem. And so that's a good start. Necessity. I mean, necessity is something that's really close to home. As a designer, you don't have to be looking at some research reports about how a woman lives in Midwest U.S. between the ages of 20 and 30 and design something for her. I mean, that is a very cool, difficult thing to do, actually, to really to put yourself in her place. But to do something out of necessity for yourself, I think that is something that you really can you can bank on. And then there's so many other triggers for good design. You know, like, um, you know, is there, you know, we, at one point, we said, OK, we want to do something really artistic to, you know, hardware, to product. Everything should be done artistically, the way we treat it. We're going to follow the strongest art movements in Europe are going to look at all the kind of influences that that has and incorporate that into our products and become and elevate the product through art. And I think eventually this kind of collaboration with Kara Rashid was really a big turning point for us, too. When we said, "Okay, hey, we were doing I was doing all the design work myself and kind of overloaded. I said, well, what maybe we should be farming out some design. And we worked with Kara Rashid and ultimately developed this the Garbino can, which was changed the market forever for us. I mean, it was the first injection molded product that was really sculptural and beautiful, essential, well priced, and um, a a terrific hot seller in the market. And one of the first low cost items as part of this democratization of design, as we call it, that was recognized by the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York. So in their permanent collection, right beside a Lamborghini. So you can imagine that uh, notification I got from them, that letter saying that, hey, your product is as valid as a Lamborghini. I mean, that was really incentive to me to just push forward with more and more product. So every way, step along the way, when you look in retrospect, um, you learn about what your purpose is and you see what the, the you know successes were. At some point, you have to say, OK, we need a strategy. We're growing. We've got more and more employees. We've got a global vision to expand our business? How do we bring everyone together? And you have to, we wrote it down. Yeah. We created keywords around the the business and that formed the kind of idea of what our our purpose was. And um, we followed that. In fact, we had meetings, uh, every meeting we had where we had, especially new recruits in there, we talked about our purpose. We went around the table talking about the keywords. So I think this is something whenever I talk about startups today, about uh, you know, creating a brand. And uh, we talk about keywords a lot, like define your purpose through keywords. Are you able to share what
0: uh, some of those uh, purpose values were?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, uh, it was modern. Absolutely. We, look, this is a kind of checklist when you say, okay, anyone, you know, people used to come to me all the time and say, Paul, I got the perfect product for you, right? And then they'd show it to me and we'd be so disappointed, like be nothing to do with anything we were doing, right? So like there's a checklist that you have for everybody when they're showing us product, developing ideas, you know, modern it's essential that it be modern, you know, it's essential that it be really new, you know, unique and innovative. So if it's not innovative, it's not modern, we're not going to do that product. Right. It also has to be affordable, accessible, priced. So that that's a huge, um, you know, um, definer of what the product is. Like anybody can do anything at, at, at any price but can you do it so that it's accessible so it could be, you know, mass produced so you can deliver it and it can be um, accessible, you know, um, functional. Okay. So we don't do just frivolous things. We just, we don't do everything we do has a kind of function to it. So you have to build in that form and function balance, uh, innovative, modern and accessible. So those are things that we talk about all the time. Now, eventually that purpose, you know, has to evolve too, because those are kind of kind of functional, uh, purposes. There's other purposes that are even more important than that today.
0: So go, can you go through those as well? Like as, because I find that quite interesting because earlier in the business, generally like your, your first purpose is, is to pay the bills. (laughs) And you said it earlier, your original purpose was to make a career for yourself. But as the business evolves, it becomes more strategic. And that's when you get into your functional uh, purpose, which that's is right. kind of what you highlighted there. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you had the, the the luxury as the business became kind of a, a world-class company, you had the luxury and the ability and the foresight to actually evolve the purpose to something even more. So can you walk into what that more was for Umbra for, and for you?
2: Well, I think it's around a community, you know, like the first thing that you think about is like, why, who are we and why are people attracted to us and how can we create a community around that? And, you know, when you talk to people about Umber particularly, there's always um, so many um, positive, um, you know, reports and like criticisms, whatever, of the product that it is just overwhelmingly about making their life better, you know, like Everyone just loves the idea of improving their life, overcoming obstacles in their lives. And even in the day to day, you know, drudgery of doing your kitchen work or, you know, bathroom things or whatever. Those kind of things that you really hate doing cleaning, you know, uh, you know, uh, anything to do with that is like horrible. And how can you make it better, easier and also make it like a piece of art when you look and you walk, walk in, you see your soap pump on your on your bathroom vanity, that it looks like a piece of sculptural art. I mean, t- transforming, you know, day-to-day product into art is like such a, an important purpose uh, for the company. Um, you know, and today now everything has to revolve around, um, there's new purposes that are mainstream now. If you look at surveys from uh, millennials that are, you know, take you know growing and dim- uh, in, in purchasing power in the market, there are other definitions that they're looking for, for how they, how they decide on to make their product buying decisions. So, you know, certainly sustainability is a big one. Now, when we were developing the product, we always had a sustainable idea, but it was very difficult, for example, in plastics, just to get recycled plastics and to be able to use them, you know, 20 years ago in a consistent way was almost impossible. You know, you couldn't get it, you couldn't buy it. It was inconsistent. Um, a distribution of those products. You could only do them in black, you know, because it was always reground, uh, you know, really, it was kind of ugly, the the situation to do things sustainably. Now that's changed. Now you have options, right? Um, I'd say, um, you know, the way you treat your workers, the community around your workers, how you have to treat them. And it's not like uh, management versus employees anymore. It's a much more um, transparent relationship, right? So those are really important. Like, and then when you realize, you know, at the beginning you're thinking, Oh, you have employees. Okay. Like either do what I say or just get out of my way. Kind of thing. It's a horrible type of mentality that I admit that I'm, I'm guilty of, but I think today now you have this kind of relationship with your, with your employees. That's a lot different that to attract them, to be able to, you know, um, keep them to train them. I mean, these are really important things. Uh, you know, the environment. Uh, just you know things are things are a lot different today about um, those kind of buying decisions that uh, that people are making.
0: i I feel like I had a very similar trajectory with um, building macro design where at first you know you're paying the bills and then you get into your 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 real kind of functional uh, purpose, which creates an incredible firm with incredible services. and then you eventually get to a point where, uh, the community and these greater purposes. And I find a lot of that was actually uh, things that I discovered as the feedback was coming back in. Something you mentioned are the reviews when people say, oh, this thing changed my life. I could no longer do this and now I can, or this is beautiful or whatever else. So now you're improving lives. And that kind of comes around in the end. And I feel like I was much like you where it evolved over time. So what I want to know from your perspective is, are there things looking back where you have these greater purpose and values that, that developed over over years and years, that people who are in the early stages of developing a hardware startup can maybe get ahead of the curve. Things that maybe they could implement early so that they can start attaining some of the value and the benefits earlier on, or things that you wish you had have done earlier that would have really kind of amplified <laughs> that as opposed to you know getting there 10, 20 years down the road, as I feel both you and I did with our respective firms.
2: Well, um, I did a lot of things wrong. I mean, I also did a few things right, you know, like, but I maybe (laughs) did things wrong, actually, because I think this is the kind of thing that you can, can you build a business when you know you're going to make a ton of mistakes? It's going to be really costly. And can you, do you have the pocket, the pockets to be able to survive like a failure? Do you have, um, you know, the right people that'll be able to stick by you? I mean, these you know because this mistakes are just enormous like almost every business plan i look at i say well whatever your cash whatever cash you need pretty well double it like almost every proposal i've ever seen it's wrong it's way more expensive than you think because you're going to make so many mistakes along the way so that's one thing i would say to the startups is like for sure like whatever you, you don't know what you don't know so you better have a strategy to be able to you know be able to respond to a, a you know a bad situation You know, um, but luckily, you know, being able to stay in the game until you really can get that product that'll catapult you into success, you know, you'll have, um, um, so many items that will maybe just keep you afloat, but then you're wait for that one. That'll really sort of get you that brand recognition that, you know, a product that will be aligned in, in buyers minds with your brand, you know, something that's really unique, um you know that's what you really sort of strive for and you don't know what that is until you can actually sort of get yourself into the market like deep into the market where you can actually sort of emerge with this solution that nobody ever el- else has ever thought of i mean this is the kind of moment the epiphany just so exciting you know so i've had those like me in the, in 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 the in the 110 degree office in indonesia you know working on some product when they bring me a sample and i thought oh my this is it okay right, this is it you know, but how many years of and how many hours of toil and working in really bad conditions in Asia, and different factories, and until you hit that moment. I mean, you just have to immerse yourself in a lot of work and a lot of trial and error. I mean, something I, I like that you mentioned
0: earlier too, especially when we're talking about scaling, is that when you scale, it's a good idea to experiment. You mentioned that the way that you did experimentation was trying a number of different products because you knew inevitably some were going to fail. So your way to essentially overcome that was diversify the portfolio, invest in more products so that when a few fail, it's no big deal. And the ones that end up doing well, do well. And then like you mentioned, you hit some that are just the home runs and that can really scale a business but uh, you know it all comes back to that first one and, and doing your best doing a good quality project professionally prevent, presented on that first product so you at least
2: can get into the market to start yeah, getting some get, of that market
0: intelligence back
2: to you right you must get into the market in some decent way i think at least to get some excitement right um, you know it's the old 80 20 rule like you know when you look at most companies you know 80% per- only 20% of their all the skus that they make are driving probably 80% of their product uh, 80% of their profits. You know, it's 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 like um, you really, most products on the shelf are about sh- keeping shelf space. But there's always going to be, I would say like almost every brand that's out there. I don't know. I was really shocked yesterday, a couple of days ago. I was in the grocery store looking at, you know, I like looking at brands and how they're displayed. I go by the Cheerios section. I never realized that the Cheerios actually had about 50 SKUs across about eight feet of um, grocery store shelves. And the main one, Cheerios, the plain, whatever that one is, is probably 80% of their sales. But they maintain that you know, eight feet of brand just to keep that shelf space to maintain their brand. So there is this idea of creating collections. Like we, we immediately started to create collections around individual products so that we could have that kind of visibility on the shelf. I think that's something that we learned pretty quickly create collections, create excitement, create a story around your product. You know, one item is really good, but you're not going to get that visibility necessarily that you need to, to move your company forward. And if we look at the,
0: um, you know, the, whether you want to call it, you know, the purpose that kind of evolves over time, are there things at like a, a mature uh, product company's purpose that you can start doing, as a startup. And we see a lot of this today where, you know, it's essentially purpose-driven startups and it's a, yes. a coin term now. And I, I think it's a very exciting thing. One of the big things that we have with our clients is, uh, be, be the human behind your product. Like you yourself as an individual, I, I, understand, you know, you might not be in sales or you might not be in design or whatever else, but you're the one who's created this in, in innovation or invention, or your kind of first, uh, starting product. Put yourself behind that, that you of course believe in it, but that there's a personality, a human, an individual that cares about, you know, XYZ problem that you're solving. And immediately that that creates a whole new level, I would say, of, of passion or purpose behind the brand, especially in the eyes of your customers. But it allows you to be much more engaged and interactive, which is something you said was key no matter what size of, of hardware company that you are, is to be part of that stakeholder community and getting getting that constant feedback. So are things that you, that you find. You know, over over almost 40 years running running a highly successful hardware company that startups can do today specifically around purpose to give themselves that that edge of a mature product company maybe early on in the game or at least part of that edge
2: well kevin i think you've done it too like uh, with by calling your co- company uh you know uh, make a design i mean that's a great example <laughs> I should be interviewing you. I think Kevin about all your (laughs) business and design insights rather than me. But I think, yeah, I see a lot of startups and they hide behind um, some kind of ambiguous name for their brand when it's actually them. they invented it. I I say like, why don't you call it after yourself? I mean, like you're behind it. You're the personality. Uh, Yeah. So the making that whole concept more personal about your own like personal passion over the idea and like, and, and just to gather, like, people around you that believe in the same idea. I think that's a really good point. And I, I just don't like when people hide behind some ambiguous name, like, what is this? Like, why don't you just call it after yourself because <laughs> you're the inventor? So, um, yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, um, at Umbra, I think the key was that uh, we always did all the... The, for example, our base, our 90% of our marketing effort was through these trade shows, you know, around the world. And there's dozens of them. And we went to everyone, Europe, Asia, all through North America, pretty well, like nine months a year, you're on the road, visiting people, seeing people. So it was a very personal, you know, effort. There was myself and my partner behind the brand and all the people associated with it. We're always there at the show. A lot of travel, lot, a lot of travel. A lot of relationship building and you know you need that kind of thing particularly when you have when you get above the radar uh of, of the of the competitors and they start seeing what you're doing and they start to uh, mimic you you need to have those relationships with your customers to be able to fend off the copies and and get you know competitive um information from the retailers and everything on what's on the market so far, because you can't be everywhere at once People, if you have these relationships with customers, they'll be help you protect your brand. So you need to be out there face-to-face with people. Maybe you could do that on Zoom today, but it's better. (laughs) I think it was better. uh, There is some value to the trade shows. I hope they do come back uh, when people are able to travel again because you have that sort of personal connection with, with customers. That's really invaluable.
0: That's great. I mean, the more information that you can get, especially as you scale your business, the better and what better person to tell you than your customers. And in your situation, it was your retailers or distributors, wholesalers, et cetera. But I even think of it from an early startup phase and something that we recommend our clients is call every one of your first couple hundred customers or send them an email at least at a get in touch with those folks because those are the people. And and you know, for everyone listening right now, um, to think about how this applies to Paul's story. I mean, look at what he he built a massive company off of one product, all because that product was good and people started asking you for more product. And I really want that to sink in as a main message or one of the main messages of many out of this conversation because I think everybody listening here understand that the easiest way you're going to get that information is from your customers. The smaller you are, the easier it is to access your customers and to really build relationships with them. If it is wholesalers, distributors, whatnot, then you may have even few direct customers to, to you. So take the time to get to know them because when they come up with a key piece of information, you want them to call you first before the other whatever your competitor or other options that they have or, or alternative products or whatnot, you want them to get in touch with you. So the the easiest way that you can do is just establish that relationship, keep in touch, ask them how they're doing, you know, both from a business and a personal level, and really get to know um, what makes them as individuals and also their business tick. What are those key pain points that they're looking to solve? And that might help you get that, that one piece of insight, key insight that helps you develop your next product, which they're already telling you that they want. So like something you also mentioned was a big thing. Your customers were almost surefire ways to sell more product. They were telling you what they wanted. So you knew that now you had the ability to take what you had in-house, make the product that they wanted, and you knew that you'd start making sales.
2: Well, yeah, we reverse engineered a lot of products based on the, you know, surveys in the market and working with customers. And then we'd go back and develop the product. You know, at the same time, we wouldn't do everything they asked because we, we thought, yeah, a lot of the, the staff working in sales and these big uh, retail chains, uh, they know the market inside out. They know they know the sales history of every single product, like top to bottom, but they don't know the future. And like they're they're depending on us to give them these kind of these ideas that are going to be you know highly innovative because nobody really has seen innovation until you show it to them you know so these are you have to have a kind of blend of you know incorporating your customers' ideas with this idea for about about f- the future you know and you know lifestyle where we're going um, and those are the those are the products that are really going to be you know outstanding right so. Um, yeah, they're going to be, I think you need this kind of blend. It's just like in a design studio, like you need a blend of, uh, you know, fee based customers. You need people that are going to give you royalties. You need a kind of balance between things. We always sort of balanced out intuitively how to run the business. Like if, you know, expanding into Europe, uh, you know, when us sales were down with some sort of recession, Europe was up. So we had a chance to sell in Europe and so forth and it was reversed. Uh, we did the different, the opposite, and then with currency fluctuations, you have opportunities to do different things. Also, if you have a diverse product line, you can withstand a lot of the worst um, case scenarios. Like we were huge in photo frames, for example, and then oh, what happens? You know, uh, the iPhone has all your photos in it right now, and nobody's you know printing. So, what happens to the frame business? Right, it really plummets. So luckily we were in a lot of other different categories to be able to keep the business buoyant. At the same time, we had to think of different ways how people have changed their lifestyle with, you know, printing and so forth. There's a casualization. We gave them things that they could just hang up rather than formalize the framing. We gave them little clips and all kinds of stuff to hang in their, in their rooms. And so we, we responded to, you know, the changing market um really quickly and that was really important too i think you see there's so many condi- so many stories about uh, like i guess kodak's the most famous about you know not being able to change with technology and the funny thing is about kodak is they actually had a digital camera but they never pushed it you know like they just wanted to preserve their printing business right so um yeah we were lucky that way
0: well and i think that all comes around I, you know you may say luck. I would say it's because you coming back to this topic of purpose. So even when you're mentioning the feedback, like we would take a lot of the feedback, we wouldn't necessarily do all of that. Well, that all plays into this. You had this kind of like grand vision that you had for the company that was baked around these principles, strategic and uh, strategic principles are very like nuts and bolts principles like you went through, but also bigger picture principles, um, like changing the world for the better, sustainability, all these other things that you incorporated to really feel good about what you're doing with with your life and the business. And those principles then help guide that feedback that you get from those customers. So when you're getting that feedback, or as you see these market conditions changing, you can rely on those principles. Your whole team understands what those principles are. As you said, you formalize them. Everybody understood what they are. And when they presented a product, they literally had a checklist that they had right. to check through to ensure that they were matching the values of Umbra. And yeah, the idea very is- Very to-
2: powerful. The idea is to take away that subjectivity of sitting in a room where people say, I like it, I don't like it, or kind of thing. Like, does it meet our checklist, the criteria of our checklist? One thing we touched on a little bit before is about community. And I have to say that, um, yeah, I think it was for our 20th anniversary or something, we embarked on this whole um, outreach to design universities around the world to create these design competitions and collaborations. And that really, I think, changed a lot of our business because, um, well, first of all, we had a purpose that was outside just profits. It was about, you know, bringing interns into the business and training and developing a new, uh, you know, whole generation of designers, um, you know, supporting design universities. We actually turned it into a very profitable thing by, you know, commercializing um, original student work, many of them. To the tune of millions of dollars and we paid royalties to the students um, to help you know fund their careers and we paid royalties to the universities too to support their programs so um, in the end what happened was um, that uh, we brought in young uh, really the best designers that we recruited through these kind of collaborations and they ended up you know really keeping our business fresh in terms of our design outlook like I'm a huge fan that. of the
0: university awards, by the way, and you know we've before our firm could afford it, before we had the time. We we uh, the first award we did the university award was university wide at Ryerson, still going on to today the Macro Ryerson Innovation Award, Fantastic. I just keynote it last week, and um it, it's it's an amazing feel good experience, but it's incredible to see the power of the student innovation that actually comes out of it. And I imagine you saw the same things. Now we're doing it at all kinds of colleges and universities generally on an annual basis, and every year I'm blown away by what the students are coming up with. The cool thing for us that I always thought was uh, kind of a, a magnificent part of, of the, the innovation award that we did is you didn't have to be in design or engineering or whatever else. It was agnostic across the school. So what we would have is folks that coming up with an invention idea in the math department and then working with an engineer and then going to work with a 3D uh, you know a kid who's in 3D printing and all of a sudden they come up with this innovation that is world changing and we've had many pr- product successes come out of that um unfortunately we don't uh economically we're not tied to them in any way but it's an amazing experience just to watch student innovation at a very early age let alone all the intangible benefits c- because you know and we hear stories years later of how that event or even just watching their friend run that event or some media that they saw spurred them to come up with their own idea years down the road or whatever else. And they started their own business, grow from there. So that community thing, um, I always knew it would be powerful. I just wasn't sure how. And now, obviously, that we've done it for for many years, I can see just how powerful it, the compounding effect of those sorts of events and, and things are over time. And it all comes back to really the core values of macro design, which is uh, you know interesting to see in the broader community beyond just the core services that we offer, right?
2: Yeah. And to take that a step further, we partnered with like stores like Target uh, in the US and uh, created these end caps of one of them that we did that was was huge was um, uh, designed by students for students for a back to school program. And the whole end cap was all work from uh, Pratt in uh, Brooklyn and Humber in Toronto, Emily Carr um, OCAD, NASCAD, um, just to name a few of the contributors. I mean, um, it was just fabulous. So even so target realized that, Hey, um, and they've always been driven by purpose to, um, to really, you know, change the impression of a mass merchant to be like, um, low cost fashion store like with innovation and their collaborations with designers and stuff. they've had a very innovative approach in retailing and so they they like the idea of hey we're going to buy product that's designed by students we're going to support students we're going to pay them royalties and um and and our customers are going to recognize us for it that we're doing something really community-based
0: this is a whole other topic for an entirely another podcast but but it's amazing because now i'm seeing more than ever that the retailers, which, as you know, were traditionally almost impossible to get into as a one product company, are starting to be more and more accepting of these one skew innovations. And I think a lot of that's obviously driven by online or, or digital competition, right? Whereas these folks are be coming and creating massive brands and the retailers miss out on that entire window. Um, so we're now starting to see clients that are actually getting cracking through the door, which has always been tough. And then holding their head and saying, look, this is my only product. And you know, traditionally, response was come back when you have a line. And nowadays, you're starting to see more and more retailers. And I really hope this trend continues. And I think it will just because of the the competitive nature, uh, driving online sales and a number of independent brands that are gaining traction. I think all the retailers right now, and, and I'm actually talking with some that are basically saying, we want to be part of that innovative movement. We feel like we've lost out over the years. And it's programs like what you did there that I think helped show them that there's some real value, financial value to them, but obviously much greater community value that results as well. If they start bringing in more than just their big corporate buyers and think there's other folks here too that are creating great products, we should also think about giving them some access as well. And it can be very mutually beneficial.
2: Well, certainly when you talk about um, how digital tech... You know, marketing has changed um, a lot of what we do. Um, You know, I really talk about um, to the designers about, like, um, you know, everyone always thinks about uh, bricks and mortar as the sort of destination for their product. Unless it's an app, of course, right? That's on your phone. But they always think, oh, yeah, we're going to have it in a store. But like, yeah, no, that's not the, where. you know, I would say, digital sales, uh, product sales are going to surpass bricks and mortar pretty soon if they haven't already, you know, probably in COVID they did. So, um, you know, how do you design a product? So it's effective for digital marketing. Well, first of all, I see a lot of presentations, of product, and they show me something on a big screen, you know, projected and everything. I said, yeah, don't show it to me on, um, a screen, show it to me on your phone. Cause that's how most people are going to be able to do your product. So when you say that to a designer and they've got a sort of ambiguous looking form to it, that's sort of blobby with no, you know, separation or color or definition. Like how does that look on a phone? Okay, sure, maybe it looks great on a store shelf. But on a phone, where most people are going to be looking at it, it doesn't look like anything. So how can you build more, you know, interest into your product because you know that now the the main marketing, uh, you know, venue is going to be um, a cell phone. <laughs> And same with anything branding too. Like I see a lot of, I work consult on a lot of uh, branding right now. And I say like, Hey, show it to me on a phone where it's like in the corner of your Instagram post, I want to see the logo like that, where it's only like, you know, centimeter across. Don't show well, we're going
0: to have to get you back on the show because that's a, that's a whole other topic too. How do we design for mobile sales? Because I think that in itself
2: is a very important oh topic and not, a growing topic, right? It's huge. It's huge. It's design. I mean, that's why I say reverse engineer for like where we're going to sell and how we're going to sell it, you know? Right. You know, the last thing I wanted to talk about really was about, you know, if you have a strategy as a startup you need to be able to design in a lot of the necessary um, attributes that didn't exist for me before. For example, sustainability, for example, or, um, you know, um, employee working conditions and all that kind of stuff, salaries, whatever bonuses, everything, anything to do with treating employees. So you realize if you want to treat your employees well, and you want to be able to use sustainable materials you need to have an innovative idea that's going to generate enough margin for you that's distinctive enough to be able to pay these people and to be able to source uh you know sustainable materials otherwise you're just a sweatshop you're working on a product that's generic it's based it's just price based And then there's no lower, there's no bottom to a price once you start fighting it out with China and and other countries. So you need to be able to have a product that's going to have enough innovation that you can command a price that's reasonable for the quality. That's going to give you enough margins to support your employees and support your sustainable efforts. Um, You know, so this is something that's really important.
0: That's a great way to tie it all together. I appreciate that, Paul. And I think it's, you know, we talk a lot about on the show about margins and innovation and making sure that your innovation ensures that you have margins. You never want to be the person who's making it cheaper, but also innovating. If you're going to innovate and make it better, then you should be getting the margins accordingly. And then that allows you to treat your, let's call it the community or this all stakeholders very well. Well, well. And you should be able to do that if, like you said, you have certain innovation or enough innovation built in that they're going to want yours as opposed to a cheaper, not necessarily even just competitor, but an alternative, right? Which is your two things that they deal with, right? When they're making I guess the last
2: warning to people pricing products is don't you you got to price it so that you're super competitive too, because if you have a great idea and you're overpriced, then the competitors will just come in and do it for a lower price or the alternatives, right? If there's an
0: alternative solution, maybe not a competitor, but an alternative, and it's a fraction of your cost, you have to factor that
2: into how you're pricing it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is really important decisions when you're starting off.
0: Paul, thanks again for being on the show. A lot, Tons of insight today, and uh, we'll look forward to having you back again.
2: I enjoyed it,
1: Kevin. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Designs, 4 design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.